The following is a special Barefoot Lawyer Reports podcast. It features Dr. William Saunders, director of the Catholic University of America's Center for Human Rights, and Dr. Lee Edwards, founder of the Victims of Communism Museum, who delivered an important briefing to congressional staff and personnel on Capitol Hill. In this briefing, Dr. Saunders and Edwards contextualize the Chinese Communist Party within the broader movement of communism, which continues to threaten freedom and democracy across the world. There used to be more of a little red light that I'm familiar with, but uh, it's great to be here. Uh, I'm a lawyer, I'm a human rights lawyer, and I, part of my mission is to help you understand that human rights is not a term that's owned by the left or by atheists. It's a term that we as Christians or people of faith should embrace because it reflects the dignity of uh, the human person created and loved by God. The Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America seeks to bring the riches of the Catholic intellectual tradition to discussions of politics and culture. It's a funny name, I think, even for Catholics and probably for non-Catholics, you know, human ecology is a funny sound. It's not an environmental thing. Uh, Human ecology just means life of human beings on earth. so it's, it's a pretty broad uh, term, and something that we call Catholic social thought is just reflection by the Catholic Church on uh, various kinds of issues, from politics to econo- uh, economy to other kinds of things. So I, you know, I invite you to vis- visit the webpage and you know, learn about it and get on the mailing list if you're interested. My particular program is a Master of Arts in Human Rights, which again, we look at particularly from the perspective of the Catholic Church, but I've had uh, several non-Catholics who have taken the the degree, and it's a part-time as well as full-time. So I know a lot of Hill staff, uh, you like to uh, add credentials and to help you move along in your career, and I welcome you to take a look at the program and see if you're interested. We're not trying to evangelize you into becoming Catholics, but we think, in fact, we offer some things that you'll find uh, really of great interest. And Lee and I will be talking about it today, uh, particularly the leadership of John Paul II when it came to defeat of Soviet communism. So he was a pope, of course, but he was a leader, uh, I think, for everybody. the web page for that is easy to remember. It's mahumanrights.com. So MA, like Master of Arts, mahumanrights.com. So if you're interested, you know, uh, follow up, let me know. I'll be happy to talk to you. Uh, I, I also have a Center for Human Rights at Catholic University. And I want to put in one more plug for Catholic University. Some of you may not know it's just right up the, the red line, you know, up from Union Station, three stops. Um, and we've had a lot of distinguished graduates from there, including this man to my left, Lee Edwards, who got his Ph.D. in uh, world politics at Catholic University. So uh, Lee is a distinguished fellow uh, at the Heritage Foundation, the author of 25 books, one of which... Um, 
might be particularly relevant for what we're talking about today, and I commend it to you, a brief history of the Cold War, um, which was published in 2016. Uh, Lee is an uh, adjunct professor at Catholic University and a great historian, uh, really, of the Cold War. So, Lee, it's, it's great to be here with you. Um, Lee is an old old longtime friend of mine and a, and a mentor of mine, so I'm honored to be here with him. Mm. So I, I want to start, Lee, just by uh, asking you, he is the founder of the Victims of Communism Memorial and the Victims of Communism Museum. So uh, why did you found those things, Lee? <laughs> well, thank you, Bill, for introducing me, and thank you, Lauren, for inviting us to come here this afternoon. You know, guys, I was thinking, and as we had our opening prayer, that wouldn't be possible in a, in a communist country. It's not possible today in Cuba or in North Korea or in China or in Vietnam to open up a meeting like this with a prayer. It's because communists hate religion. I mean, it's not just a, a, an easy thing with them. It, they see it as a direct challenge to what they're trying to do for two reasons. Philosophically, because communists say there is no such thing as human nature. It doesn't exist for the communists. And they say that all of us are born just with a blank sheet. And anything can be imprinted on that sheet, on that surface. And secondly, they're opposed to religion politically. Because they say that people of faith, like you all, organize. And you have meetings like this. And that kind of a meeting would be a threat to the political power of the communists. So if you read the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx says that religion is the opium of the people. It's the opium. They hate it so much that they will do anything and everything they can to stamp out faith, religion, and, and God. Uh, Briefly, I got into this because when I was a student uh, in Paris um, a lot of years ago, I was about your age, and one day, this is in 1956, the fall of 1956, and all of a sudden, all of Paris was very excited because a revolution had started in Hungary. And young men and women, just your age, had said no more of the Soviet tanks, of the Soviet troops. We're going to get rid of them. Leave our country. We want freedom. We want liberty. <clears throat> and the communists were so shocked that they pulled out of Budapest and Hungary. And I was in Paris as a student. I got so excited, I was going around almost dancing in the streets because people were speaking up for freedom, right? And saying to the communists, get out of town. For two weeks, 
That was what the message was. <clears throat> and then what happened? The tanks came back in. The troops came back in. Young men and women like you stood up against them with old shotguns and rifles and, and Molotov cocktails, and they were slaughtered by the communists. As muddy as 2,000 young Hungarian students were killed. Almost 220,000 were in jail, and 200,000 Hungarians fled from Hungary. What was my reaction? Well, I was, I was just floored by this. How could this happen? And now what's, what's going to be the reaction from the West and from the United States? It was a press release. It was a calling for a resolution in the United Nations. Meaningless, powerless actions. And I said, well, and I was embarrassed for my country. I was embarrassed for my government. And I said, well, I pledge, I vow that for the rest of my life, I will do whatever I can to support those who are resisting communism. Then jumping ahead several decades, finally the Berlin Wall did come down, which had been there for 30 years, blocking off Eastern and Central Europe from the West. And 100 million people had been living behind the Iron Curtain in poverty and in misery. Little bit of improvement here and there, but no freedom of speech, no freedom of assembly, no freedom of religion, no freedom of press. And the ball came down and Soviet communism was all over. And again, it was time to celebrate, which was okay. But already we could see that people were forgetting what communism was all about, what had happened behind the Iron Curtain for 30 years, and it had to be told. And so we started the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. For the ladies in the audience this afternoon, I want us to be very open about something. <clears throat> that my wife and I, my wife Anne and I and our daughter were having brunch and saying, and I was going on and on, you can tell I get excited, I was going on and on about, about communism. We, we must know what it was all about. And Anne looks at me and she says, you know what we need? We need a Victims of Communism Memorial. It was her idea, so I scribbled that on a paper napkin, stuck it in my pocket. The next day, made the call, and we began putting all the pieces together. So in 2007, it took us a few years. This was 90, so four, 14 years later, about 15, we were able to dedicate a memorial to the victims of communism on Capitol Hill, Massachusetts Avenue in New Jersey, across from Georgetown Law. And George W. Bush was there as president to accept it for the American people. And in a bipartisan way, Tom Lantos, whom you guys probably never heard of, but he was a great, great, great orator, chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee, and the only person ever to survive the Holocaust and to serve in the Congress and a liberal Democrat. So there was Tom and there was George W. together 
talking about the victims of communism memorial. And then another decade went by and we said, well, memorial isn't enough. We have to have a museum, a permanent place that people can remember and research. So a, a museum of research and remembrance about the victims of communism. And by the way, how many? 100 million victims of communism since the Bolshevik Revolution. A hundred million. That cannot be forgotten and will not be forgotten if we have anything to say about it. And so just, uh, just uh, earlier this year in June, as a matter of fact, we dedicated and, and announced and opened our Victims of Communism Museum. <clears throat> and you're all invited to come on down. We're at McPherson Square 15th and K, just two blocks from the White House. And I'm happy to say that we're, people are coming and those numbers are increasing every single day. Well, I don't want to talk anymore. Oh, I just want to say I'm taking my students to visit it. I hope you all will visit it. Um, there was a book that came out, I don't, I'm not sure, 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, maybe but it was called the Black Book of Communism, and they tried to, to document the people who'd been killed by communism. It's about that thick. I mean, you know, Lee said 100 million people. I mean, that's, that's not a statistic. It's 100 million individuals, you know. And if you believe, like you do here, uh, <clears throat> the dignity, again, of the human person that if you're a Christian, that Christ died for each person. That's a hundred million. One after the other. Person one, person two, you know, John, Sue, whatever. One after the hundred. It's not a statistic. It's, it's a number of human beings, individual human beings who had, you know, families, uh, who, you know, either had children, they certainly had parents, they had friends, you know, they were school teachers or bus drivers or whatever, and they were murdered in the name of communism. Now, that is a heck of an indictment of communism. And I agree with Lee the importance of this Victims of Communism Museum because you know, you, you guys are all a lot younger than we are, but and you may be better informed than, uh, than your peers, but I think many, many, many young people have just don't remember the, what happened under communism. And I mean, it's, it's vague. They might have a vague idea. I just want to say a couple other things. The fall of the Berlin Wall, was the conclusion of the Second World War. The Second World War, which again, we, we forget, we think, well, it was just, it, it was three great political systems at war. One was, of course, the Nazis. One was Western uh, democratic government. But the other one was communism. And because of the war, I mean, if you look at Europe before the war, the communists were killing people right and left. Uh, it was a war. But because of the way the Second World War went, of course, 
the United States and the Allies were allied with the Soviet Union, and so uh, a lot of people lost sight of that there were th three combatants in that war. And after the Second World War, the Soviet uh, Union created an empire, uh, but of communism, and there was this wall. And again, I mean, you I, maybe you've all seen it, but if you haven't seen it, go online and look. You can there are places that have pieces of the Berlin Wall. And um, in, I was telling Lee, in 1988, I was in Czechoslovakia, which is now two countries, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. But I was in Czechoslovakia six months in 1988. Nobody I knew, now Lee is uh, smarter, so he may have seen this coming, but nobody I knew had any idea that six months later, the Berlin Wall was coming down and that communism would collapse and that there would be freedom. And with freedom comes challenges, yes, but the dictatorship of communism was defeated. So you can change the world. You can change the world. Because I'm telling you, people thought that communism would continue for another hundred years, that, that Soviet empire, or lots of people did. And in fact, because of people, Lee and I'll talk about, but because of people who believed in freedom and in the dignity of the human person and who would not give in to uh, business as usual with a regime that had murdered a hundred million people, the world changed. So. so I'd say that you can think about it in these terms. There are three different people. There was a president, there was a prime minister, and there was a pope. The president was, was Ronald Reagan, who when he came into office in 1981, said that he was not going to accept anymore a policy of accommodation, of detente. He said that from now on, we're going to initiate a policy on the offense. We're going to take down the Soviet Union. And one of his top aides said, well, that, that, that's pretty ambitious. And he said, well, it may sound ambitious and it may sound simplistic, but it can be summed up in these words. We win, they lose. And no American president had put it just that way until Reagan came along and said that, you know, no more are we going to accept to be playing on the defense. So the president initiated, for those of you interested in foreign policy, we talk about that in a Brief History of the Cold War, a multi-tiered thing, which was economic, it was political, it was strategic, it was military, all these various elements were put together in a the Reagan Doctrine. That was in 81, and by 85, 86, before the decade was out, you could see that the Soviet Union was beginning to disintegrate before your very eyes. Cracks were appearing in that wall, in that Berlin Wall, in that Iron 
Iron Curtain. And then, of course, the Pope, John Paul II, who came to Poland and said at a mass for one million Poles, be not afraid. Such simple words, but carrying such, such weight and such inspiration. Be not afraid. And how did the people of Poland react to that? By, within a couple of years, 10 million Poles had joined a solidarity trade union movement. That was one quarter of all the people in Poland at the time. It would be like uh, 80 million Americans joining up. That's, uh, as Bill said, what can happen when one man or one woman sets a, that kind of a, an example. And then finally, the Prime Minister, uh, Margaret Thatcher of Great Britain, United Kingdom, who was also saying that there's something different about Mikhail Gorbachev, who came in as the General Secretary of the Communist Party. She said, we can do business with him. Now, that was pretty shocking. But Reagan said, yes, we can do business with him, and we will, once we have established a strong military for the U.S., once we can talk to the communists from a position of strength, then we can talk about making a deal. We can talk about doing away with guided missiles. We can talk about doing away nuclear arms, which is what happened when Ronald Reagan sat down and talked over four summits with Mikhail Gorbachev. So the president, the prime minister, and the Pope all came along. How did that happen? Was that coincidence? Was that just luck? Or was it providential? Well, I believe in providence. But I also believe in free will. And these various discreet actions taken by the Pope, the President, and the Prime Minister made it possible for that wall to come down and for 100 million people to be freed after 30 years under tyranny. Yeah, and I, uh, I, I would add a couple of things. Um, first, I would add a fourth person uh, to Lee's three, which was uh, Solzhenitsyn, um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, you know, I'm sh I don't want to assume, you know, you know something that perhaps you don't, but he, you know, he was a great dissident. He had survived the, concentra uh, the concentrations, the gulag. And sometimes I was, I've been asked, what's the most uh, influential book I ever read in terms of my work as a human rights lawyer? And it is his volume one of the Gulag Archipelago. Here was a man who insisted that all those people who were worked to death or killed in those camps would not be forgotten. And he wrote the three-volume uh, Gulag Archipelago, which is magnificent. If you haven't read it, it's thick. You know, each, each volume is about that thick. But at least read volume one. Um, and he also wrote a book called One Day in the Life of 
Ivan Denisovich, which was world-changing. This, he brought to the attention of so many people the horrors that were going on behind the Iron Curtain. And his, also, I, I was telling Lee, I have my students, we always read his address, his commencement address at Harvard. Um, if you haven't read it, read it. It's, it's very influential. And um, anyway, he, I would add him as the fourth person. The other thing I want to mention is, you know, I told you I was in Prague in Czechoslovakia in 1988. Well, now that, you know, there's the uh, Czech Republic and Slovakia. And actually, every summer, I teach in Slovakia in a program that was started by Michael Novak, who played a key role in all this. Um, he had a human rights portfolio, and there were the Helsinki Accords under which uh, the Soviet Union had to observe and various things, and there were some human rights requirements. But he started in Slovakia a program called the Free Society Seminar, which goes for a couple of weeks each summer, and I'm, I'm one of the one of the professors in it. And one of the things we do is we visit an old uh, fort on the Danube River between Austria and Slovakia that's called Devon Castle. It's, it's just kind of a ruin, and it's, and it's not a castle, but it's just kind of, like I say, a military fort. But the border between Austria, which was free, and Slovakia, which was under the Soviet Empire, Soviet Communist Empire, was the Danube River. And there were many people who were shot swimming across, trying to swim across the Danube. I mean, just put yourselves in that, you know. You're so desperate to escape this soul-destroying communist totalitarianism that you, you know, you try to escape, you know, and you're, you're murdered, you're shot, you're, you're an innocent person, you're not armed, and you're shot. So they have a memorial at that Devon Castle of all the Slovaks who were murdered as they tried to move to freedom. And I mentioned that partially to get us back to the Victims of Communism Memorial which, uh, and Museum, which is the purpose of which is to not let us forget those people, right? Mm. Right. I think probably what we say is our theme, remember us. And just as our Jewish brothers and sisters have been so brilliant about calling to our attention the Holocaust when some six million Jews died, that we take that as our inspiration as well, that we say we must remember them those people who died under communism. You know, it's, it's probably a little bit hard for you all to, to comprehend these kinds of, kinds of numbers. Uh, but, there, but as Bill said, there, there are these individuals who stood up, some of them, to communism. Some of them were innocent people who were just dumped in the... Uh, and the gulag, what was the gulag? Was a system of forced labor camps throughout all of Russia. And one of our heroes at the museum is uh, Victor Getman. He's an artist. 
And he and his friends in 1944, 1945, 1946 got together socially. And one time, because of Joseph Stalin, was pretty a, a tyrant and a dictator, they were artists. And so he drew a little funny picture of Stalin. And somebody reported that to the police. And Victor was con condemned to 10 years in the gulag and permanent exile away from his homeland. Well, he survived almost 10 years because Stalin finally died in 1953. And what did he do? For the next 30 years, he painted life and death in the gulag. And those paintings have been given to us at the Victims of Communism Museum. And if you'd like to come and see those, you will see one artist's idea of what it was like to live and survive. Some did survive like him under, under the gulag. And there are so many stories like that which we feel have to be told and must be told so that people will remember the victims of communism. Yeah, um, so if you forget the past, you're condemned to repeat it. So we're talking about this for the, all the reasons we said, but communism did not end when the wall came down. It, it continues, and it continues today as you all know, the largest country in the world is a communist country, and is um, and I since you, all you guys work in you know on the hill, I'm sure you're pretty sophisticated in it. But we have we have a center for human rights at Catholic University, where I work with a man who's called the Barefoot Lawyer. Uh, he is a blind man. His name is Chen Guangcheng, and he escaped from China. I, I could talk for him, about him forever. His, his book called The Barefoot Law, you ought to read it because you will not believe. So anybody who be believes in divine providence, which is all of us, I guess, the, the only way he can escape is kind of a miracle. He's blind man. His house was under 24-hour surveillance by teams of guards. He had to escape you know, by himself. I mean, his, his wife had to stay in their home so the, so the guards didn't know he'd escaped. He escaped. How can a blind... Can you imagine if you had to do that in the dead of night and you have sighted? You can see, you know. But anyway, he did, and he's in the center, and he's dedicated to uh, opposition to the Chinese Communist Party and the birth of true democracy in China. Um, so China is a great threat. You all know that. I mean, they, they are the biggest threat in many ways to uh, democracy. They're, the Chinese Communist Party seeks to build the perfect totalitarian state aided by super-fast computers and AI technology and facial recognition. And they're so sophisticated in their, their recognition, they can follow 
They can, they can make deductions about who you met with by your body language. There are cameras everywhere. Uh, in the Uyghur territories, they put Chinese Communist members living in the homes of Uyghurs. They have concentration camps for the Uyghurs, re-education camps where they're, they're, they're destroyed, their culture and history is destroyed. They've taken over Tibet and driven the Dalai Lama into India. You know, the Christian churches, at the front of the Christian churches, imagine yourself if you went to, to your church uh, this Sunday, and you have a, a painting of Jesus, and you're required by the state to have a painting of Chairman Xi up there. Imagine yourself at Christmas, if you're singing Christmas uh, hymns or carols, and you're required to sing hymns of praise to Chairman Xi. So, internally, China crushes human rights, and they're a threat externally, as you know, by infiltration, and they're so rich by uh, uh, giving money to people to not be so critical of them. It so happens that I was in China, mainland China, communist China, a little over a decade ago. Um, I couldn't get in today, I'm sure, <laughs> with the, what we've done with our museum, but uh, I was able to get in at that point. And I had an opportunity. I said, well, I want to go to church. It's a Sunday. And so my, my handler, who was a young Communist Party member, said, sure, we'll go to church. And it was a magnificent cathedral in Beijing, the capital of China. And it was absolutely, every pew was filled. And it was a Catholic church, cathedral. It must have been, I don't know, 3,000, 4,000 people there. And I said, well, this is, this is wonderful. This is really a, a quite, quite impressive. Um, how many churches are there like this? And she said very proudly, oh, we have another church, cathedral, just like this. And I said, well, that's, and how many people are there in Beijing? Maybe 25 million. So in a population of 25 million, there are two Catholic churches. And that was it. That is the extent to which the Chinese Communist Party fears people of faith who will come together as we're doing here today and talking and sharing. One thing I might just ask you to, to remember, because you know, we're all in politics here, what Mao Zedong, who was the great uh, dictator and tyrant of China, he once said, and it seems to sum up the Chinese Communist Party and the way it looks upon people. Political power, he said, political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. That is the way that they maintain their power and their control, through the barrel of a gun. So remember that. Q&A? Yes, please. Yeah. yeah. Thank you all so much. It is vitally important that we 
asking Beacon Street's students of history um, so that we can grow and learn and not make the same mistakes. So let's open it up. I think I saw right back there. Hi, Joshua Gross with Congressman Duncan. Um, it seems to me that we've talked very much about this in the past tense. And yet, the Gramsci form of Marxism is now ascendant on our college campuses in the United States. What advice would you give this room of young people, because I am old enough to remember when the wall came down in 88, um, how do we combat communism from ascending here so that we're not adding tens of millions of Americans to that list? Go ahead, Bill. Um, well, you're right. I mean, cultural Marxism is uh, as great a threat to America as the Chinese Communist version is. Um, I think, I, I don't, I, it is a gigantic, difficult issue because it's gone on so long and we've done so little and it's so well entrenched and they're having their march through the institutions and now a lot of that thinking has taken over our business, our, our major corporate. Uh, so not only have taken over the academy, not only have taken over Hollywood, if you don't believe they've taken over Hollywood, uh, and I'm sure you all know, but I'll just give you an example. They can't get a movie made about Chin Guang Chin's life and escape, which I can tell you there's some very important people in Hollywood uh, who are champions of his because he says bad things about the Chinese Communist Party. So they've marched through the institution. I, I don't know for sure other than fight. I mean, resist, I mean, insist. Um, well, I think you, you take it one step at a time, and that's what we've done first, speaking personally, with the memorial that we have here on Capitol Hill. People come from all over the world and have uh, a, an event there. Uh, the center of that memorial is a replica of the goddess of democracy who was there in Tiananmen Square back in 1989 and which was destroyed, we reproduce it with the bronze variation. So leaders from all over the world come there, uh, lay a wreath, say a prayer. That's number one. Number two is our museum. And uh, I'm happy to say that both the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal have written articles about our museum praising it. So it's possible to break through even the, the media curtain, uh, which, which does exist here. There are books which have been published, like the Black Book of Communism, like our little brief history of the Cold War, and we're gonna be writing with our, with our, uh, our daughter, uh, Dr. Spaulding, uh, another book about the brief history of communism, of global communism. I think that People are more aware now because of what Bill is talking about of China and what's happening there, are more receptive to the facts and the figures and the truth about communism. They have been for a long, long time. Of course, you can tell I'm an optimist 
and I think that we can prevail if we all get about it. I look out and if young people like you can get a little bit interested and do some reading and being willing to talk about it, we can make a difference. And it can be a bipartisan issue, right? It should be a bipartisan right. issue. Yeah. The, the, the president who signed uh, us into public law was Bill Clinton. And who was there when we dedicated the memorial was George W. Well, those are two rather different presidents, aren't they? Uh, but that, that is something that we've always strived for, is to be par par bipartisan. And we are. Yeah, and just on one last comment on the cultural Marxism, is that you, you just have to confront it, and I know it's difficult, and but you have an obligation as a Christian in the public square to speak the truth and try to advance the truth in a prudent way. Um, so, but the what should I think sh could inspire you is what has happened when the, the Iron Curtain was destroyed. I mean, uh, you know, again, when John Paul II became Pope, within the first year of his pontificate, he said, I'm going to Poland. Uh, and the communist ruler said, no, you're not. And he said, yes, I am. And they couldn't keep him out because it's a, it's a Catholic country. The Pope is a Catholic. Uh, I mean, the Pope is Polish and Catholic. And he, <laughs> and he wants to come visit, you know. So he, he visits. And then, like Lee said, you have this great Christian uh, worship service that really changes. So, in, in other words, I, I, at least from my perspective, and I wasn't as involved in this as Lee, like I said, it looked like communism might go on for another hundred years. But one person after another person, the four we mentioned, but many, many more said, no, I'm going to stand for the truth at the extent I can, where I can. And the world changed. Well, I think also, well, questions there. We, we're talking an awful lot up here, but if you all have questions. I have a question right here. Oh, thank you. Sorry. We'll get to you. Um, thank you, gentlemen, for this presentation. Here's something I always wonder and never research, and I think today's the day to get my answer. How and why does tiny little Cuba remain a communist nation? Talking about Cuba, and it was that Fidel Castro came to power by taking down a dictator, Batista. So everybody was on his side. Saying we got to get rid of that dictator, and here's this young firebrand that's going to bring us. And Fidel promised free and open elections. Free and open elections. Well, that was what 60 years ago, and the people of Cuba are still waiting. So he has used the police, he's used the military, and he has used the United States as an excuse for maintaining his power. And whenever anybody has come along to challenge him, and there have been those who have, uh, that's the end of them. They're either put in jail or they're executed. You hear no more challenges to Fidel Castro or the people who have uh, uh, succeeded him, which is to say, in each case where the the Soviet, whether the communists have prevailed, 
it's because they have had a strong political party. And that was the case in China. It's the case in North Korea and Cuba, particularly. Uh, so I... Sorry. Are you able to talk about Douglas Hyde? If I ask a question about Douglas's Hyde conversion, are you familiar with him? No? I'm not. Are you? Yeah, I'm, I've, okay. I, know, I know of him. Yeah, so Generally. in 1948, Douglas Hyde was the... Uh, was basically the leader of the Communist Party in, in England, and he converted to Catholicism. He wrote a worldwide famous book called I Believed, and then his follow-up book was called Dedication and Leadership, and in that, and so I want to interact with two things that you said. In that book, one of the things, and he, he converted to Catholicism, he, he was frustrated and bewildered that one of his quotes is, communism asks for the whole man and gets it. Christianity asks for and is happy with far less. And by the time his book came, I believe, came back for republication, he blocked it, basically because he thought that the Christian church, this goes to your question about why, why communism is afraid of Christianity, he believed that the Christian church could do what the Catholic, or, or what the communists were trying to do, mm. but for the good, with a good anthropology, and believed that the Christians could, quote-unquote, change the world. But when he didn't see it happening, he basically lost his faith. And so I'd, I'd like to hear you talk about whether or not communists, like what form of Christianity are communists actually afraid of now? Because in the West, it seems like most of us are very, very lukewarm and if I was a communist, I wouldn't fear them very much. Well, it certainly is no true. I mean, it certainly is true that the communists are deathly afraid of Christians in China. I mean, that whether uh, you're talking about uh, Protestants, whether you're talking about Catholics, for that matter, if you're talking about Buddhists, if you're talking about... Uh, Tibetans, you're talking about the Uyghurs who are Muslims. So all of these religious groups are under severe scrutiny. They are, whenever they have public meetings, you wouldn't be able to have a meeting this large even uh, in China, uh, whether you're, you're Muslim or Catholic or Protestant or Buddhist or what have you. Uh, so you might say, well, so what? Are they? They're, they're so powerful. They're not that powerful. We know from our sources in China that there are demonstrations, daily demonstrations, every day throughout China. There is great uneasiness. There is great unhappiness in China, and so I think that the seeds of revolution are being sown there in China. And just as people say, "Oh well, China's going to," you know, number two economic power in the world, it's going to be this is their century nonsense. They're under tremendous strains, and there, is, there are possibilities for a true revolt and revolution based upon what we have heard from people inside China. So do not be discouraged, and do not fall for the communist propaganda that they're so powerful and invulnerable. They're not. As a matter of fact, you know, I've, I've used the phrase, they're a Potemkin village. They look powerful on the outside, but inside they're weak 
and rotten. Yeah, I would I would just say uh, just quickly because we want to get to his question because he's had his hand up for a while um, that the kind of Christianity the Chinese communists fear is real Christianity. In other words, an allegiance to something beyond the party. What the Chinese communist, what any communist party tries to do is they replace religion with a cult of the leader. And you have it in China and you have it in any of these countries. So a real Christian who has ultimate allegiance to something outside the party is what they fear. So they want to tame Christianity by making it, uh, you know, communist friendly, right. not so. Right. Yeah, that's true. They have what are they called? The people's churches. The people's churches, which, which are controlled by the party and by the government. They're not true, as Bill said, they're not true, as true uh, religious groups. We'll have to be the last and quick question. <laughs> I am Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. I note that if you ask any high schooler uh, in, the U in the U.S. who's the greatest mass murderer, you're going to hear Adolf Hitler. Uh, mm -hmm. Mao is 60 million. Stalin was 20 million. Adolf Hitler was 11 million. Yeah. My question is, um, somewhere around 1950, we decided that the Soviet Communist Party was incompatible with long-term civilization. And we conducted uh, decades of information operations and clandestine operations to break that party and succeeded in 40 years. When does the campaign begin to break the Communist Party of China? Because I sure as hell see nothing. <laughs> Well, uh, it has begun. It has begun, and like there is proof of it uh, in our very existence with our Victims of Communism Museum. People told me that we were crazy to think that you could have an anti-communist, pro-freedom museum like that in Washington, D.C., but they were wrong. Now, it takes persistence, it takes some grit, but it can be done. And as I say, the reaction uh, to our museum is very encouraging. When the, when the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal both praise you, you know you must be doing something right. 